What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48 inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. And joining us now, he is back. He is in Vegas for Summer League. It is Keith Smith from Spot Track and the Front Office Show. Keith, thank you so much for taking some time, man. I know things are hectic in Vegas and maybe even a little crazier for you today. Yeah, it's been a crazy day. There was a little hostage situation, apparently, at Caesars Palace. and We get trapped there for a little bit, but but it's Vegas, right? I guess, you know, that's how it goes out here. Yeah, that's scary, man. So you guys got stuck at Caesars Palace and were people still gambling there? Yeah, it, it was. Wow. Uh, have you seen the Ocean's Eleven movies? I, yes. I, I don't know which one it is, but there's one where they cause an earthquake, and like everybody stops, and then somebody's like, "Lucky Seven, and then they all go back to gambling. It was basically like that. Like everybody <laughs> kind of stopped for a minute, and then they all went right back to gambling. So that's crazy. Well, I do hope everybody's okay from the situation because obviously <laughs> that's that's really scary stuff. All right. So before we get into some of the bigger stuff, Celtics related. They reportedly they were at John Wall's workout on Monday, and obviously we know there's a relationship between Sam Cassell and Wall going back to their days with the Wizards. And Wall last season he lost his job with the Clippers after not playing in 21-22, where the Rockets just said, "Hey, we, we don't want you to play." I mean, I kind of feel bad for the guy when it comes to that. But the numbers are bad last year. You look at the impact metrics via cleaning the glass: 107.7 offensive rating with him on 10th percentile, 6.9 points per 100 worse which is horrible, obviously, shot 30.3% from three. The finishing was really bad. And the Clippers decided, hey, Russell Westbrook was a better option after how poorly Westbrook had played with the Lakers. And to Westbrook's credit, he actually played really well at stretches, especially in the playoffs for the Clippers. But is it worth taking a shot on John Wall at the minimum? Or do you think he's pretty much close to done here? I would say if he was willing to come in and take a role that is bench veteran I'm going to be deep into the bench kind of like what Derek Rose has done over the last couple of years then on the minimum sure right you can never have enough veteran guys it kind of 
Blake Griffin ended up playing a lot for the Celtics, but like what his role was intended to be. But if he's like, hey, I'm John Wall and I want to play, then I would stay away. You know, you've got <laughs> enough other guys. It, it just, you don't need somebody else muddy, muddying those waters, right? Where it just becomes even harder. And then, you know, at that point, it's like, all right, would you just trade Peyton Pritchard, please? Because like you were keep bringing in these dudes over top of him and he's just never, never going to get a chance. So yeah, if, if he was content to come in and just be your locker room guy and he's a, you know, your third point guard, fourth, you know, guard off the bench or whatever, probably not an issue. But my guess is if he's going to all these links, he probably wants to be a part of things and play. And for the Celtics, I think they have, you know, no pun intended, but bigger needs elsewhere. Yeah. And maybe too, they hope that. He does what Westbrook did for the Clippers that he didn't do for the Clippers if he came in here. Just give him a little bit of burst, maybe something off the bench. We'll see. I, I really feel bad for the guy because he was really good. People forget, like, he was yeah. really good before the injury. Like, those Wizards teams, and I know they like to talk a lot of shit, and they they didn't win a lot of playoff series, but they were good, man. I mean, that series they had against the Celtics, they should have won it, I mean, based on the talent. That was... A really good team, and they just couldn't get but over the Kelly Olynyk had other plans. Yeah, game seven, <laughs> the Kelly game. That's what I say. Like Kelly Olynyk got the video. I can't wait for the smart video. Like when he comes back after what we right? said, Kelly Olynyk got a video, man. So the, the smart, smart video might need to just be like you fly in for a game on a Wednesday, and the video starts on Tuesday night, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like and then yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to the game when we get to it. Well, another guy that may get a video is Grant, right? So before we get into the loss as a player, teams are having now, it seems like, Keith, to consider this uh, second apron situation. So some of the stuff, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you know the cat better than anybody, but some of the things that you could receive due to the second apron, they include the loss of the mid-level exception, a ban on including cash as part of trades, and the inability to accept more salary in a trade that the teams send out. They can also, they cannot aggregate salary in trades. So you have to make like basically one-on-one trades and you can't, basically you can, your first round pick can get lowered as well if basically in two of the four years, you're over that second apron. So when you look at Jalen about to get a big deal, Porzingis signed the extension, Tatum's going to get his extension after next season. How much does this second apron factor in, if you will, for this grant situation, considering based on also the fact that he was going to be your fourth big? Because I like Grant as a player, but how much do you think the Celtics in particular were factoring in that second apron? Yeah, for this year right now, the 23-24 season, not really a huge impact for the Celtics had they brought him back, but it, he wasn't coming back on a one-year deal. Right. Like they have a ton of other money coming off the books. So what ultimately is going to happen in this situation with uh, you know Grant Williams and the Celtics, and obviously he's moving on now, um, via sign and trade to the Mavericks, but what what the the kind of the bigger conversation was? It's about those those further out years, right? And all those long list of uh, penalties and restrictions that you rattled off. Some of those don't even come into play until next season, the twenty four twenty five season. They're not all right. uh, coming in. It's being phased in. Kind of they treated this year as the hey, get your books in order year. And mm-hmm. a team like the Warriors was like, all right, we'll move Jordan Poole's long term money for Chris Paul's <laughs> short term money. And they did it. And then a team like the Suns was like, awesome, one last year to get super expensive. Let's load up and go. And that's just your different philosophies and team building. But for the Celtics, to bring it back to them, yeah, if you're going to have Jalen Brown on, and I'm just going to say 50 plus million, Jason Tatum eventually on 50 plus million, you're going to have Porzingis sitting there on a 30 plus million dollar deal. You're going to be in a spot where that's still most of your salary cap to three guys. 
once you fill it out, and you still have guys like Bob Williams, you have Derek White, ideally, hopefully, sign uh, to an extension when it's time. And you've got all those guys kind of locked into you know what what really look like good value deals, but it all adds up very quickly. And then if you're the Celtics, you're in a position where, much like where the Warriors or the Suns were at this offseason, where it is all you can do is sign your own draft picks, uh, re-sign your own free agents, and then sign players to the minimum contract. Um, and by the time it would matter for the Celtics, all those trade rules would have kicked in. So then that's when you can't aggregate the salaries together. That means you can't take, um, you know, and I'm just making it up, but Rob Williams and Derek White's two contracts put them together and go get a $30 million player. You're not allowed to do that uh, coming right. up when you're above uh, that second apron. So those are all going to be the major restrictions that these teams are going to get hit with. And it's going to make it really hard to build out the roster in a functional way. Well, as you go through this, let me ask you this, because you mentioned the Warriors there and you look at it, the Nets, the Warriors, the Clippers, they were spending like crazy, right? And I'm not trying to sound like a, a Weiner Celtics fan here, but if you look <laughs> at the Celtics, they drafted and developed well, right? They hit on Tatum, they hit on Jalen, and Jalen, because maybe some injuries, he can now get the Supermax. But if you look at it, a guy like Grant, that's a good developmental story, and he's on a good contract. I think that's a very reasonable contract that Dallas signed him to, and I actually think he's going to be really good for Dallas. Brogdon, I get the injury stuff, but 22 and a half over the, the next two seasons, Derek White, the contract he signed was four for 70 with the Spurs. So 17.6, 18.8. You would definitely take that based on the player you saw last year. Rob, injury risk, but he's at four for 48. So that kind of makes sense. Al's at what, two for 19 and a half. Yeah. So it just feels like to me, like the Celtics are almost, unlike some of these other teams that are in, that could be in the second apron territory going forward, the Celtics are sort of being punished for like making good decisions. Like, I don't like wh where's the thing that the Celtics like royally screwed up that now they have to be punished for because I would imagine if this as we went through the second apron stuff like if this wasn't coming in in the next couple of years maybe they keep grant and they're willing to just pay luxury tax bills right like I, I and like I said I don't want to sound like, sound like that whiny Celtics fan like that homer that green teamer but it does sort of feel like it they're one of the teams that's going to be hurt by it more than other teams. Yeah, I keep getting sent that meme where it is, it's a picture of like a book that's like this thick. And it says something along the lines of rules the Celtics have to follow with the CBA. And then it's like a book that's like this thick and it's like rules other teams have to follow. People keep sending <laughs> it. And it's really, it's, it's the same book. So here's, so this is the way I've been kind of differentiating this and having a lot of conversations out here in Las Vegas this week have really helped to kind of put this in clarity. So the new CBA, Everybody thinks about the Warriors because everybody knows they've been super expensive for like four or five years now. But the new CBA wasn't as much about punishing the Warriors as it was what the Clippers and Nets were. Nets, Clippers are and what the Nets were becoming, mm -hmm. um, where they went and signed free agents and then just started trading for salary, trading for salary, and then just built up these massively expensive teams. The Warriors, much like the Celtics, if you go back and look at their core, they drafted and developed all of those guys. Right. The only guy who plays major minutes for them that wasn't drafted and developed was Andrew Wiggins. He he was a trade acquisition, and that was such smart salary cap management. When they knew they were losing Kevin Durant, they rolled that into a sign-and-trade to bring back D'Angelo Russell to preserve the salary slot to then go trade him to get Andrew Wiggins. So all of those things put together. So when the CBA was coming in to you know, kind of form this new CBA. We heard a lot about a hard cap, right? And the NBA was like, we want, or what did they call it? An upper spending limit, which is just, they just call it a hard cap. 
but <laughs> they got up to to that number. And what happened at the end of the day was that scared people away, right? People were like, no, like hard cap equals bad, right? You you're limiting how much we can spend. So they came up with all these complexities around the second apron and all this other stuff. Celtics are very close to the Warriors in that position. Now, what they've done is they've said, you're not gonna, you don't have to lose your guys, or you don't have to lose if your boss and Rob Williams, who you've put a lot of time and effort into developing when he becomes a free agent. You don't have to lose Jalen Brown. You really don't even have to lose Grant Williams. But what you can't do is what the Warriors did last year, which was be super duper expensive and then go sign Dante DiVincenzo on top of it just because you can't. That's what they're trying to limit and tell those teams like, hey, you can't do those things anymore. We're trying to keep you in a spot. And then with the Warriors, it's, hey, you can't then turn around and trade Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole for a $50 million player just to bring in more salary. So those are the limits they're putting on teams. This year, like I said, 23-24, Boston could have brought Grant Williams in. It's just looking down the line of our what what you know. And and I I tried to explain it to someone the other day is let's say they said we're matching or which we're going to give Grant that contract ourselves. Then you may be having a conversation a year from now of oh, can we really keep Derek White? You know, can we afford him? You know, what right. what do we need to do? And that that those are the kind of conversations. What they're trying to do is take the teams way up here in salary, push them down. Teams way down here, bring them up and bring everybody more to a level playing ground as best they can. Yeah, and part of the reason they do these penalties in terms of the ones are the draft and the mid-level exception, all that stuff, is because those actually punish the team, right? It's not like, because you have these owners like Steve Ballmer that's like, okay, I'll spend whatever. So that's why they had to put these things in there, and that's why the Celtics sort of have to think about this in the future with Grant, that it's a great point. Like, it's not about this year. It's about, okay, if we have Grant, then what are we doing with the rest of the roster long-term? And I have to imagine part of it, too, is you look at, he fell out of favor with Missoula. So maybe they just looked at it, okay, Porzingis is a higher upside guy. Unfortunately, you have to move on from Grant. The one thing, that, and I mentioned this briefly last week, that concerns me about losing Grant is the Giannis stopper. He's your best defender on Giannis, especially considering Al Horford's age. So if you get into a potential series against Milwaukee, you don't have that button to push anymore if you're the Celtics. And I do wonder if there's a point, Keith, next year where we get into, say, the Eastern Conference Finals or the semifinals, depending on what happens with the rest of the conference here, the Lillard and the Harden situations, that we look back and say, well, maybe they should have kept Grant Williams. Maybe they could use Grant Williams right now. Because, I mean, you look at this team as of right now, who do you think they can put on Giannis besides Al? Yeah, Brian, I'm not even worried about that. That's like a down-the-line worry for me. My worry for this team is like, Rob's always hurt. Al's yep. old and misses games. Porzingis' health re- health uh, track record is not great. So are we going to get to December and it's going to be like 35 minutes of Luke Cornett a night? And no <laughs> yeah. knock on Luke Cornett. Like he right. does a good job when he's called upon. But that's like, hey, Luke, we need you for 25 minutes tonight, not 25 minutes every night. Right. And that's where like, that's my problem with losing Grant Williams right now. My thing with this whole loss of Grant Williams was this team is built to win the title today, right? right. That, that is what they are built to do. So I, in my, my favorite phrase that I've been using on all this is let's let tomorrow's problems be tomorrow's problems. When you're a title contender, they were a middling team. You know, if they're sitting like where the bulls and the Raptors and those kind of teams are just kind of around the middle of the conference, then fine. Like I understand if you're like, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to have a $80 million tax bill for this team that's only going to be in the middle of the pack and cause myself all these problems I have to deal with down the line. 
But if you look at it and say, yeah, we could win the championship this year, then you know, we, you sacrifice good quality depth. And I, I openly admit, I think people are way too hard on Grant Williams. I think people focus far too much on what he can't do versus the things he can do. And then now when I think long term, you're absolutely right. It's like, are right, we're going to put Al Horford on on you know, Giannis to start games and on Joel Embiid. And then when he goes to the bench, uh, we'll just figure it out and hope for the best, right? And and I got to believe to some extent they're not done, right? We'll see what else comes with the roster, what else they're working on. But as it stands right now, yeah, you've lost a very good quality guy. And a guy, even if Joe Mazzula didn't always seem to love him in the rotation, everybody else kind of knew you can put Grant in for, you know, all right, Al's sitting out tonight. Grant can play 30 minutes tonight. He's going to be just fine. Brady's probably going to produce and be okay. Yeah, it's a great point, too, about the second apron stuff in terms of worry about that down the line. You get a chance to win a championship. Grant Williams could be a major factor. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't get to the NBA Finals two years ago if you don't have Grant Williams, right? So, and I You'll did get feel, to the East Finals without Grant yeah, Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit, hit yeah. all the threes against Milwaukee <laughs> yeah. in Game 7. It's a great point. So I just, and I know he fell out of favor. I just feel like... I'm with you. I think he's a much better player than maybe some fans think. And I think he's a much better player than maybe the head coach of the team thinks he is. I would have used him more (laughs) last year. Like, hey, Joe, the beginning of the Philly series probably should have been in the rotation. (laughs) Beginning of the Atlanta series probably should have been in the rotation. So maybe that's just part of the calculus as well. So to that point, sorry, I just want to add on to that. I think to that point, that's got to be part of it is right. Because part of what happens in these discussions is, Brad Stevens and his staff need to go to ownership and say, all right, we want to sign Grant Williams for $13 million or whatever it is. And then ownership says, all right, what is that going to actually turn into? All right, well, that actually turns into your $50 million because of the penalties and all the other things. And then if you're with Grossbeck, you're going to turn around and be like, didn't Joe Missoula play him like five minutes a game in some playoff series? Like, <laughs> yeah. we can't replace five minutes? Like, you know, no, I don't want to pay that much. And I'm not saying that's exactly how that happened. I don't know, but that's to your point. That's got to be part of it, right? If you're looking at and saying, right, if he's committed to saying, hey, my three bigs are Horford, Porzingis, and Rob Williams, and I just don't have room the way I want to play for a fourth big, then no, it's not the best investment of your resources to do that. And maybe what happens now is if let's say there is another trade with Malcolm Brogdon or something like that, then maybe you take on some money in a trade like that. And that replaces some of the money you may have spent on on Grant Williams, because again, they can still take on money in trades for one more year. It really gets restrictive on them, you know, down the line. Yeah, my only question about a Brogdon trade going forward is, and I would have loved the first trade where you keep Marcus Smart, right? But of course, the Clippers had other plans. But my question about that is just, okay, if you're trading Brogdon now, so you have the trio of Derek White, Peyton Pritchard, who would expect to get more playing time now going forward after he wanted to trade last year in Brogdon, if you're trading Brogdon, are you going to get another guard in return? Because it feels like if you're trading them, you're looking for a different position. And I'm just not so sure now that you can actually trade Brogdon because it doesn't appear that you would get a guard back. So that means it's just going to be a whole lot of Derek White and Peyton Pritchard. We know White can handle it, but can Pritchard handle it, right? Like, especially considering last year, they viewed him as the fourth guard. Can he take over as being like the primary backup point guard? I just feel like now you almost kind of have to keep Brogdon. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I get it. He doesn't show up in the impact metrics, but he was the sixth man of the year. He shot the three ball real well. So I'm yeah. not saying it as a problem. I just, I really think they have to keep him now. Yeah. And my thing is, if you could tell me, and this, and that, I'll go back to when they traded for him basically a year ago. One of my points was on that was, 
you know, Malcolm Brogdon is a very, very good player. And obviously that bore out, like you said, shot, shot well, scored well, fit in well, one six man of the year, very deserved six man of the year. But my question was always, it's not about his ability. It's, it's his ability to stay on the floor. Right. And that's my concern is, you know, if let's say, let's say they don't, they'll do minor moves to fill out the roster, but let's say that's it. And they roll in. Now for me is there's a lot more variance in this team. Feel pretty good to say Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to play at a minimum an all-star level. Derek White's probably going to be very solid and very good. My question is, when the guys play, they'll probably be really good, but how much are they going to play? And that's what I get worried about moving forward um, with this team is, you know, how much are all these guys going to play? This past season, up until the East Finals when he got hurt, was Malcolm Brogdon's first healthy season since his rookie season. And that's a little scary, right, to think about, all right, this guy now, no Marcus Smart in the picture, he's got a huge role. Now, I would say if you could, in an ideal world, you're probably trying to trade Malcolm Brogdon and his $22 million salary and break it up into a couple pieces, right? Mm. Get a guard and get, you know, a wing or, or a big wing who can also play some, you know, four or something like that along those lines. That's probably what I would be looking to do with that contract versus, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, all right, we're going to put him into a trade and go get a $25, $30 million player. And, you know, we're, we're going to come back you know, with another star guy. I also don't know how that, that helps you because now, you know, we already talked about the roster is going to be top heavy. You bring in another guy that level. He has to fit perfectly one. And right. then it becomes, all right, now we're in a spot where, geez, we got a lot of money tied up in like three or four guys. So that's why I think if you could spread it out a little bit, that, that just gives you a little bit more roster balance and a little bit better cap sheet balance as well. Yeah. So that Sprogdon thing is going to be interesting because it's a great point in terms of his availability, because if you think about it, that's the reason he went to the second round of the draft. Like he mm -hmm. clearly was good enough to be a first round pick and he was flagged coming out of Virginia. And then you think about the situation in terms of, OK, if he is back, then you're looking at four out of your top seven or maybe even four out of your top six, Porzingis, Rob, Al, and Brogdon, you're worried about injuries with all four of those guys. I mean, that's a large and number. And are you sure Jalen's going to stay healthy? He that's a good point, too. some seasons, right, where he's missed some time. Yeah, it's, it's very worrisome, right? Yeah, even going back to, I know it was a weird injury last year, but to be in the playoffs, he was having trouble because his hand, he had an issue yeah. with his hand, and he's had multiple issues in terms of his injury history. All right, so we do have to get to the big Let's one. Let's get him Keith. that max extension so someone else can water his plants for him, right? Like, <laughs> pay, pay somebody to do that. Well, that's what I want to ask you about next, because obviously there's still not the Supermax deal for Jalen. And from a cap perspective or from a contract perspective, I wonder what you think is going on here. Is this sort of some of the other stuff involved, like the trade kicker, the unlikely bonuses, or are they really trying to figure out a way that maybe they don't bring him back on the Supermax contract? What do you think is sort of the negotiating process right now? Because I can't imagine, based on Jalen being upset with all the trade rumors in recent years, mainly the Kevin Durant one, and we saw a couple of the articles, one here at The Ringer from Logan Murdoch, about some of the issues that he had with the organization, the three-way call with Jason Tatum and Brad Stevens. What do you think's going on in terms of what are the two sides negotiating right now? What would be your best guess? Yeah, it's really kind of a guess, because everyone I've talked to out here in Las Vegas, whether from the Celtics or, or other sides of that situation, all you get out of them is, yeah, you know, it's going to get done. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And to me, it's like, well, there's, I, I don't want to cheapen negotiations, but there's not a whole lot to negotiate here. Because I imagine it started with Jalen Brown coming in and saying, 
I'm eligible for 35% of the cap. Please give me that. And the Celtics saying either yes or no, or uh, how about 33%? Because I think that is getting missed a little bit by some people. It does not have to be 35%. The only thing using the designated veteran extension rule, which is what he's qualified under, it just means it has to be a five-year contract. It can be anywhere between 30 and 35% of the cap. So the Celtics might have come in and said, hey, could you do 32 33%? Because that'll help us down the line and all those things. You might have Jalen Brown come back and say, I just did a non-max deal, which was incentive-related, because it would help you down the line and all the other things that were coming. And if you're Jalen Brown, to some extent, too, you can't continue to play, well, you know, we're going to have to sign Jason Tatum to a super max in another year or two. Hey, yo, uh, yo, anyway, here, because then that turns into a little bit of, oh, wait, what am I, chopped liver? Like, yo, what are we doing? So that turns into, all right, well, then maybe I'll take a little more. Then I want the trade kicker on top. I want a player option at the end of the deal. I want, you know, whatever it is. And that's probably my guess is where everything's getting tied up is in those fine details. Or you may have, and I've had people suggest it, and I don't know that it's completely wrong, is, until some of these superstar trades are resolved, Jalen Brown is the Celtics' best reasonable trade piece. And why I say reasonable is you there's worlds where you could say, all right, I could see them trading him for superstar X in a package for superstar X because he makes you know, a lot of money and he's a very, very good player too. So if it was, you know, I'll just say Damian Lillard, because that's the guy who's all out there on everybody's minds right now. Um, as an aside, you can have a single conversation out here in Las Vegas that doesn't start with, what do you think is going to happen in the Dame situation? <laughs> um, so in this case is with, with Jalen, I do wonder, is there something to be said for, well, we got to, not, not that, I, I don't know that the Celtics are, you know, actively involved in that, but if it came back around, if Hayes opened up his list, Jason Tatum's recruited him actively, you know, he wants to, he's open to Boston. Well, you don't want to be in a spot where it's like, well, crap, a week ago we could have done it. Now we can't because Jalen Brown, once he signs that designated veteran, he's not, he's trade restricted for a full year. So that could be part of it is, you know, are they just kind of keeping options open that way? I don't know that that's true, but I just, you know, something is happening here because more often than not, these Supermax deals, the guy becomes eligible and it, you know, the bell rings at, you know, midnight on July 1st when they're actually able to offer it because it's an extension versus a free agent negotiation, when they're able to offer it, it's offered and off we go. Um, yeah, it, it's something's a little odd to me that we haven't just, this isn't just done. I agree with you. Something's weird. And that Lillard thing would be interesting because you think about it from the Blazers perspective, it makes a lot more sense to go after Jalen Brown than it does Tyler Hero. And Hero to me, he doesn't even make sense on that team. They just drafted Scoot. They have Simons, who they're obviously super high on, and they have Shaden Sharp. So if anything, it would be like getting another team involved that likes Tyler Hero. And maybe from that other team, whether it's been Brooklyn, where Brooklyn says, hey, we'll give more picks to get Hero. Maybe that's the way they end up getting this done. I really hope Dame doesn't end up with the Heat because the Celtics just lost to the Heat without Dame. It would be (laughs) tough to see them play them with Dame. But maybe that's part of the calculus as well. Yeah, I can tell you on just on that one. That's basically where it is. Your read of that is basically where it's at, talking to everyone involved. And Portland, without saying it, is basically saying anytime they talk publicly, which their GM just did a couple of days ago out here in Las Vegas, and basically said, hey, it takes time. And then he went through it. And I thought he did a very nice job. He was very respectful of, 
hey, Damian Lillard has done a lot for our franchise. We love him and we'll always love him. But in reality, we have to do what's best for the Trailblazers. Like, this is not about always, you know, what's best for Damian Lillard. It has to be what's best for us. And if you read between the lines, it's like, dude, we're happy to trade you to Miami, but their offers aren't good enough. You know, so that's basically a shot to Miami saying, hey, step your game up. Go do what you got to do to get us what we need. And we'll go. And again, everything in a negotiation is start up here, start down here, and then you come to the middle, right? Portland will come down a little bit on what they want. Miami will find a little bit of what little find a way to give them a little bit more. And I think that's ultimately how that'll play out. But the longer this takes, the more likely it is some unexpected team will jump in and say, uh, hey, over here, we can do this deal. What do you like? Do you like what we have to offer? Oh, you do? Great. Let's get this done and I'll move along. So, yeah, but I'm with you. I mean, they don't have any interest in Tower Hero because if it's not there, it just doesn't make sense for them as a franchise to to go that direction. I, I was told they'd rather have Kyle Lowry because of the salary um, expiration and that mm. frees things up. But that comes with you could add picks and picks and picks on top of it. And that's just where Miami, I think, is struggling to get to that value right now today, you know, on July 11th as we record this. Yeah, and we just saw it last year, maybe not with a player of the same stature, but it felt like, hey, Donovan Mitchell wants to go to the Knicks, and eventually uh-huh. the Cavs are like, hey, we're offering you all this stuff, right? Yep. And he ends up getting traded to the Cavaliers instead and of the And nobody Knicks. thought about them, right? Nobody yeah. mentioned the Cavs until all of a sudden it was, uh, hey, the Cavs are in this, and now, now it's done. Yeah, it, it, you know, and then every once in a while, it's, you know, sometimes we see these deals where it's like, guy wants to go somewhere, and it drags out, and then eventually it's like, Oh, wow, look, he got exactly where he wanted to go just because that tends to be how these things work. All right, Keith, before I let you go, because I know you're real busy out there in Vegas, will Jordan Walsh be part of the Celtics playoff rotation? I I tend to think no, hmm. um, just because he's just got he's raw. He's got a lot of work to do. I, I'm very enthused by the things I've seen from him out here in Las Vegas. I like his confidence with his shot that he's taking it. Uh, very clearly, it seems someone got got him the message of, hey, take three-pointers when they're open, right? Like, don't hesitate. You know, let it fly. <laughs> and I think there was some message of, hey, you need to be physical defensively. Get it in the guy's faces. I'm not saying they're trying to make him into the Grant Williams replacement, mm. but I think there's a little something to that, right? They're semi-similarly sized. I think Walsh is more athletic, Grant's stronger. Um, but it's, you know, they're, they're similar size height, similar size length. Um, you know, those kind of things. So I think, you know, we're in a spot where we may see that turn into, hey, we, you know, this is ideal. You know, look, look at what he did. I wouldn't be surprised if when all this wraps up here and they all go back to Boston, if it's, hey, part of your daily you know, routine as you're working out in the facility, we want you to watch some tapes of Grant and see how he found his spots on the floor. You know, do you, you know, got really, really, I mean, Grant got great from the corners. Yeah. Right? Like I made it a running joke on Twitter. I'm like, oh, Grant's working from the corner office. And that's like just a thing, right? So if Walsh can knock those shots down, that's huge. And that's he's gonna have to defend and you know, not just not just try really hard, but actually defend in a functional way because he's committing a crap ton of fouls yeah. out here. But that's part of the summer league experience. But he's gonna have to defend, he's gonna have to make shots. And if he can do those things, there's a chance, you know, he could break through as a rotation guy. But I tend to think they'll upgrade and find something else, uh, you know, over you know, an unproven rookie. Yeah, I don't get why they give you so many fouls. I guess it's just in case you don't run out of players, but it is weird. Yeah, I, I think it's also, too, talking to folks over the years out here, some of it is the referees are all, like, new referees and they're in oh, training. Oh, okay. And they don't want to unfairly hurt a player. We're all this is 
really about development for these right. guys more than anything. And they don't want it to be, oh, a ref called a ticky-tack foul, and now the guy's out of the game. I mean, they're not going to call 10 ticky-tack fouls, right? Like, you know, if you, if you fall out of a summer league game, you 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 did some work to get there, right? It's kind of, It becomes almost like the media dream because you're watching a ton of these summer league games, and some of them are, to be kind it's not good basketball um and it's like and then when it's like hey that dude has eight fouls you almost start rooting for like get two more and fall out with 10 like it starts (laughs) to become a thing yeah press him see see if you see exactly trying to get a steal yeah you're exactly right go over his back you know so yeah it becomes a whole thing you know there's no cheering in the press box as we all know but you you find little games to play with yourselves while you're up there no doubt. That is Keith Smith from Track, the front office show. Keith, thank you so much for the time. Enjoy your rest of the trip out there to Vegas, and hopefully it isn't as crazy as it was for you today. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. I'm headed home tomorrow morning, so hoping I can uh, get, get through the rest of the night and, and hop on a flight home, but I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Great stuff, Keith. Take your first swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to $200. That's right, just bet 20 bucks and you'll land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's 200 you can spend betting everything from the money line to the over-under to who you think is going to hit the first home run. So I'm looking at the Red Sox and the Cubs as they return from the All-Star break coming up on Friday. The Red Sox playing their best baseball of the season and the Cubs are not. They're 42-47. and 47. It's not a very potent offense. In fact, the opposite of that, they're slugging 396, 22nd in Major League Baseball. So I like the Sox on the run line. I also like Brian Bayo, alternate five strikeouts. And as we've mentioned on the pod, Bayo not a big strikeout guy, but the Cubs have a 23.9% strikeout rate. That ranks 23rd in Major League Baseball. So even though Bayo doesn't get a ton of strikeouts, the Cubs will do him some favors in this one. They strike out a lot. And then how about two bases for Rafael Devers after not making the all-star team? I really believe that Rafi's going to have a huge second half after the first half was up and down for Rafi. He had some bad luck, but I expect him to get things going. Started up on Friday because he actually is swinging the bat really well right now. All in an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash Pike to get $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at Sportsbook.FanDuel.com. All right, great stuff there from Keith Smith. He's always really good on the salary cap situation. And of course, a lot of decisions are going to be interesting going forward, not only for the Celtics, but in the NBA due to this second apron situation that is just a totally new thing for these NBA teams, especially the teams that want to spend a lot of money, like the Clippers, like the Warriors, etc. All right, so the deadline in Major League Baseball is right around the corner. And it looks like the Sox right now are in the hunt for a playoff spot, despite being last in their division, right? And With baseball, who the fuck knows once you get into the playoffs? I'm not saying they're a favorite or anything along those lines, but we've seen in recent years, right? The Rays won the division in 2021, and the Red Sox outclassed them in the playoffs. And the Rays, right now, they're playing really bad baseball. They're 3-7 and in their last 10. So remember this start that Tampa had? They felt like this Death Star. And I even said at the time, This is great. They're unbelievable and all that different type of stuff. But I never believed them to be this like 
unbelievable team that nobody would be able to beat in the postseason because we've seen them put up these great regular seasons and they never get to the finish line, right? And if you think about the Central in the American League, nobody scares you. In fact, the Red Sox would be in first place if they played in the Central and not the East. The Rangers are, of course, a wagon right now in the West. The Astros are the Astros, but not the same team we've seen in the past. And the Yankees, in terms of your own division, have major issues. The Blue Jays have not been the same this season. They needed a left-handed bat. Now, Yoshida, they were apparently the runner-up for Yoshida, according to him. So the Blue Jays are not really the team that everybody thought they would be coming into the season. Remember, they were the favorites to win the division. And I know the Orioles have had a really good start to the season and all that, but it's the Orioles. We really scared of them when you get to the playoffs. So my point is this. I'm not saying that the Red Sox are the favorites in the second half or anything like that, right? But the Phillies made the World Series last year as an 87-win team. The Braves won 101 games last season. The Mets did the same. They were by far third in their division. And not to mention the Dodgers won 111 games last season. And you see what happens. The Phillies make it all the way to the World Series. So baseball, if you have injuries, things get wacky in the playoffs. Really, like we say, anything can happen. It can happen like that in Major League Baseball, unlike the NBA, right? Where the NBA... Usually the team with the best player wins. It doesn't happen like that in Major League Baseball. So if you get into the postseason, you really do have a chance in Major League Baseball. Just look at the Phillies last season, right? So let's get into sort of a metric man breakdown here of what the Red Sox should be looking for as we get closer to the trading deadline, because I believe they should be buyers. Now, we know the Red Sox have an elite offense. If you look at their numbers at the break, 263 average, that's fourth. 332 on base percentage, that's fourth. 427 slugging percentage, 7th, 760 OPS, that's 7th. The strikeout rate's really good, 21.3%, 7th, putting the ball in play, which is obviously essential with all these new rules. 4.96 runs per game, that's 7th. 206 doubles, that's 1st in Major League Baseball. So all the offensive categories, they're really good. They have enough offense, right? You look at your outfield, you actually have too many guys. Now, I'm not saying you have too many guys, but you get my point, is you have Four quality outfielders in Duran, Yoshida, Verdugo, and Duvall with the bat. Okay, obviously Yoshida, not a great defensive player. Then your infield, you have Casas, you have Rafi, Yu Chang, who stabilizes the defense right now, Arroyo for now, and you're going to get Trevor Story back, right? So you have plenty of offense in the outfield, and that infield has been much better defensively as of late and will actually be even better when Story comes back just because you now have Yu Chang. And remember this, Turner, as we've seen lately, he can play first base when it's a tough lefty on the mound and Casas can get the day off. And that actually makes your outfield better because when you do that, you take Yoshida out of the outfield, you DH Yoshida, and therefore your offense can still be at the same level with Turner and Yoshida as it is with Casas. And at the same time, your defense gets better because you take Yoshida out of the lineup, right? So the offense is fine. You do not need to add a position player. Your bullpen... And we went through some of this the other day when I gave up my awards. The back end is legit with Jansen and Chris Martin. Pavetta has been a stud out there. Ever since Pavetta went to the bullpen, he's been phenomenal. So since going out to the pen, that was on the 21st of May. 29 innings out of the bullpen for Pavetta because he's been doing it in the bulk role, right? Third among relievers. Third. Third most innings since he went to the bullpen. 297 ERA. So good numbers. He's a legit weapon out there. I would like Whitlock and Crawford back in there, to be honest with you, when they come back from their injuries. I understand right now you need Crawford into the rotation because you don't have any depth as it pertains to your rotation. And of course, when I look at it too, Houck's still coming back from an injury. Whitlock's still coming back from an injury. We mentioned Whitlock. But here's the thing right now, 
you're going to have to do a couple more bullpen games coming out of the break, and you're going to have to use an opener with Pavetta. Pavetta, when he is the bulk guy, you just have an opener. But then you're still going to have these other games where you have two more bullpen games coming up before guys come back from their injuries. So you can get away with the opener days because Pavetta has been that good as the bulk guy, but you're still short. And Hoke has never proven himself as a starter. And I get it. He was throwing the ball well before the injury, but he's never proven himself as a starter. And that's a really scary injury that he's making his way back from. And he's proven himself as a weapon in the bullpen. I prefer him to be there. But you get my point. I look at Crawford, and we gave him the numbers. He's legit one of the best relievers in the game, or at least he was prior to going into the rotation, but he's tailed off when he became a starter, right? And if you look at it, last five starts, when he started to get up to the point where they wanted length for him, right? Because the first couple of starts, he's gone like three innings. He's gone six innings just one time. So when they wanted him to actually go deep into these games, he's gone six innings once out of those last five. So he's not giving you any length whatsoever. And since going back into the rotation, we're looking at seven starts for Cutter Crawford. 470 ERA. That is 62nd out of 93 starters with a minimum of 30 innings during that stretch. 283 opponents batting average. That's 79th out of those 93 starters. So the numbers are bad. The performance is bad. And the Sox have lost four of those seven games. And those three wins with the exception of one, really had nothing to do with Crawford, right? The Sox offense won those games. And even the one game that Crawford pitched well in, the Red Sox put up a 10 spot against Minnesota. The other games, 10 over Texas, and the win over Texas, they scored 10 runs, and seven in a win over Toronto, okay? So he has not been the reason that those three wins happened. One of them, he gave him credit for Minnesota, but it's really been about the Sox offense when Cutter Crawford's on the mound. And as we've seen, based on the fact you've lost four games, four out of those sevens, he... Four out of those seven, he's been a liability. But this is not supposed to be a whole exercise on Crawford being bad. But it is tough to go from a sprinter, so to speak, to a distance runner all of a sudden, like Crawford's being asked to do. It's two different approaches, pitching out of the bullpen compared to the rotation, right? Out of the pen, he was in attack mode. And out of the rotation, it seems like he's thinking too much. And I would also note the fastball is not playing like it was out of the bullpen as it is, or in the bullpen, it was playing really well, in the rotation, not so much. So if you look at it, the first time that you face Crawford, it's tough to pick him up, right? Because he kind of hides the ball. He kind of short arms it. And if you look at his numbers, the second time through the order, this is as a starter, the second time through, the numbers on Crawford, 375 batting average, 406 on base percentage against, 626 slugging percentage against, and a 1031 OPS against. So if you take those numbers and you look at the best hitters in Major League Baseball, that hitter, okay, facing Cutter Crawford the second time through the order, would be second in batting average behind only Luis Arise, who was flirting with 400 for a while. He's not going to get that, but nonetheless, he was for a while. 406, the on-base percentage, is behind only Luis Arise, Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., and Yandy Diaz. Of course, all those guys are in the All-Star game. 626 slugging percentage. Only one guy has a slugging percentage north of 626. It's Shohei Otani, the best power hitter in the sport. And that 1031 OPS is behind only Shohei Otani. So basically, you have a combination of Luisa Rise and Shohei Otani when they when batters face Cutter Crawford the second time through the order. It's been that bad. So basically, you have the best power hitter and the best hitter in general in terms of from an average perspective. So He's clearly not hiding the ball the same way the second time through the order. He's getting beat up. So my whole thing is, 
All these guys, if you look at the rotation, there's questions, right? We can't depend on Sale coming back. Whitlock, Hauk, and what we're finding out right now, Crawford right now doesn't have it in the rotation. This is not to say he can never be a starter, but right now he doesn't have it. So three of those guys are health risks when you look at Crawford, Hauk, and Whitlock. And all those guys also have questions in terms of they're not proven starters. And I told you, love what Paxson's done. He's been phenomenal, but he is also an injury risk in some capacity, right? I mean, the guy's been injured basically the whole time he's been a member of this organization outside of the last two months. But you have two dependable starters right now. You have Paxton and you have Bayo. And Sale, he was great, but now he's hurt again. So what has transpired with the injuries, with some of these guys just not being effective out of the rotation, like the Cutter Crawfords of the world, and to a lesser extent, Garrett Woodlock was not good as a starter this season, right? I get he had his moments, but overall, you look at the numbers, they have not been good. So if we look at the Red Sox rotation, what has all this meant? Well, what it's meant is they have a 467 ERA, that's 24th in Major League Baseball. They have a 452 FIP, 21st, so I know a lot of people want to look at the defense as the problem. The defense certainly did not help the pitching staff, but also if you look at some of these other numbers, the pitching staff did not help itself, right? 41.6% hard hit rate, that's balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour, that was 24th. They've been barreled up 127 times, 19th. 76 home runs, 25th, that has nothing to do with the defense, and just 449 and a third innings, that was 22nd. So you're not getting length because of the injuries outside of the few guys that are giving you length, Paxson and Bayo, and Sale pre-injury, but of course he's hurt, and that's part of the reason you're not getting length is Sale's hurt, right? And you're giving up a ton of loud contact and home runs. So the loud contact and home runs has nothing to do with the defense being bad earlier this season. So yeah, the numbers may look a little bit better, but the home run numbers don't look better. The hard hit rate doesn't look better, right? So it's pretty obvious, right? When we look at this trading deadline, what this team needs. And what you need is a starting pitcher. And I don't get selling when you're in a spot with an elite lineup. This is an elite lineup, okay? Maybe you didn't think it was at the beginning of the season. This is an elite lineup. And the bullpen is really good. Martin's a stud. Jansen's a stud. Pavetta's been outstanding out there. Like, the bullpen is legit for this team. And you're the Boston Red Sox. Please, just help this fucking team. Just help them, because all they need is a starter right now. And it's clearly obvious. It, it's it's amazing to me. Get a guy that you know can go out there every fifth day and give you five to six innings after Bayo and Paxton, right? And great. Sale's coming back, and Whitlock's coming back, and Houck's coming back. We don't know if any of those guys are going to be reliable going forward. You need a legit starter, okay? And look, part of building up your farm system is having a surplus of guys that you can use in trades, right? And I know there's still in the building stages of that group in terms of the farm system. And they've done, to High and Bloom's credit, they've done a nice job building up the farm system. Teal, the kid they took out of Virginia, the catcher, everybody thought that the guy was should have been gone by the time the Red Sox picked. So that's a great pick for the Red Sox, getting that guy at 14, right? It's kind of like when we talk about the situation with the Patriots drafting Christian Gonzalez at 17, massive value. So this is massive value. So they added another nice piece to their farm system. But the one thing, and I'm not try, trying to say trade Teal. That's not my point. But my point is this. One thing I always give David Dombrowski credit for. He was phenomenal at identifying the guys in the farm system that you actually could trade, that you'd be okay trading, right? So Moncada and Kopik, not Rafi and Benintendi in the sale trade. Remember, they were trying to get Raphael Devers, and David Dombrowski said, fuck no, if you're going to ask me to do that, well, guess what? I'm not trading him to you. I, I I want Chris Sale, but I'm not putting Raphael Devers in the deal, right? So he was 
good at saying, this is the guy you're not getting, and these are the guys you will get. And if you look at Moncada and Kopik, yeah, Kopik's had flashes, but he's never been a consistent pitcher, and he's a health risk as well. And Moncada's just not a very good player. And then if you look at the Kimbrel trade, the main piece in that one was Manuel Margot. And Manuel Margot's a fine player, but you do that trade again and again and again because Kimbrel, and I get it, the 18 postseason, he was not great. But basically, for a three-year period, four-year period, this guy was one of the best relief pitchers in all of Major League Baseball for you. You look at even like a smaller move when you traded for Steve Pierce at the deadline because what you needed was a right-handed complement at first base to Mitch Moreland, a guy that could hit lefties. Steve Pierce becomes the World Series MVP, even though I still believe that David Price should have won that. But nonetheless, getting back to my original point here, Santiago Espinal. You gave up nothing, essentially. Not to say that Espinal sucks, but you do that trade again, right? It's not like you got burned. He's not like a great player or anything along those lines. And I'll give Heimblum credit for the Schwarber deal. He gave up Aldo Ramirez. That's it. Who was 20 at the time, and right now he's coming off Tommy John surgery. So you do that trade again because Schwarber was a big part of this team getting to the ALCS in 2021, okay? So my whole point about this is you got to figure out which guys in your farm system, you can't like all of them, right? It's impossible to like all the guys in the farm system. And you know where you have positional strength. So you should be able to identify the guys you can get away with trading, right? That's why you have a surplus of guys at certain positions so you can trade some of those away for big league players. That's how the process works. So you owe it to these guys right now to get a starter, okay? These bullshit bullpen games cannot keep going on. I'm fine with the opener with Pavetta, like I said, because Pavetta's really taken to that bulk roll. But let's not play the wait-and-see game to see what the injury-prone guys look like, okay? I don't want to wait for that. We mentioned the non-proven starters, right? So why don't you go get a proven starter, okay? So who could be out there? Let's get to the interesting portion of this in terms of who the Red Sox could go after. Okay, so the juiciest storyline is our old buddy Eduardo Rodriguez. So Erod does have an opt-out after the season. So you would think that would make him less valuable. Although with Erod, remember last year was basically a lost season for the guy. He had the ribcage injury and then he was on the restricted list for a personal issue. So he only made 17 starts. So the reason I laugh about Erod in the opt-out situation is he may actually decide, you know what, it's better for me to actually not opt out of the contract and stay in. Because if you look at it, Erod's had a really big injury history, including this year, where he was dealing with a finger issue. He missed all of June. So Erod, based on that injury history, may just say, you know what, making 18 mil next year, that's pretty good. 16 mil in 2025 and 15 mil in 2026, I'll take that. And so, yes, Erod was good pre-IL. Before he went to the injured list, Erod was really good this season for the Tigers. A 2.13 ERA that was fourth among starters, a 0.98 whip that was third, and a 31.7% hard hit rate that was sixth in Major League Baseball. Of course, that's balls off the bat 95+. plus. So the numbers were really good with Erod. So if you trust the finger is good, he was having an outstanding season, right? Like, so if you just trust he's going to be healthy after coming back from the finger issue, then He's going to be good the rest of the season if that's what you truly believe that the finger's fine because he had been really good before the injury. But I just don't see this happening for the Red Sox based on the years left on the contract. And think about this. If Bloom didn't want to pay Erod going into his 29-year-old season, why would he want to risk having him from 31 through 33, right? The Sox clearly didn't believe in Erod, or at least members of the front office didn't. And I've always loved Erod more than most because I feel like he got a ton of bad luck as a pitcher. But you can understand why Bloom and company weren't super high on the guy because of the injuries that have compiled over the years. Okay, so I don't believe the Erod thing is the reunion's coming. So how about a couple of other names? 
The White Sox are a team that should be dealing because they're 38 and 54. Obviously, Dylan Cease is not going anywhere. He's their stud, long-term ace of that organization. But Lucas Giolito is going to get moved. So if you look at it, he enters free agency at the end of the year. So he would be a rental. Now, if you look at the numbers, 345 ERA, 33rd of 80 starters, minimum of 80 innings, 25.3% strikeout rate, that is 30th. So the numbers, too, they're good against righties and lefties. 234 against righties, actually better than against lefties, or I should say he's actually better against lefties. The reason for that is lefties aren't touching his fastball, hitting just 169 against that pitch. So I would love this type of move for the Red Sox, but I don't see the Red Sox willing to give up the capital in their farm system to rent a guy like Lucas Giolito because I believe there's going to be a bidding war for Giolito. One of the teams, like some of the top-tier contenders in the National League could go after Giolito. The Dodgers are in need of starting pitching. So I just don't see Giolito being a guy the Red Sox sort of get in a bidding war for, right? All right, so the Cardinals, despite, of course, they gave the Red Sox trouble. That was basically when Jansen had those issues, blew the two games. They should have won both those games. Nonetheless, I don't want to digress on that, but they're 38-52. and 52. They expected to be a good team this season. They suck. They're in the basement of the NL Central. So Jordan Montgomery certainly sticks out there. He's a free agent after the season. Montgomery this year, 103 innings. Now, he did leave his last start when he was dealing with a hamstring issue. So we'll have to keep that in mind after the All-Star break here. But he did say that he didn't think it was going to be a problem. But on the season, Montgomery has really good numbers. 323 ERA, that's 21st of those 80 starters with a minimum of 80 innings. The hard hit rate balls off the bat, 95 plus, 36.3. That's a really good number. That's 14th out of those 80. So he prevents loud contact. 0.87 home runs per nine, 20 seconds. So he keeps guys in the ballpark. So he's not a big strikeout guy, but he doesn't give up a lot of loud contact. Gives up a ton of ground balls, which is good, of course. 45.9% in terms of the ground ball rate. That's 26 among those starters. So a lot of good contact on the ground, right? I mean, I should say a lot of poor contact on the ground, which you love to see. And if you look at it, he had a 3.83 ERA for the Yankees two years ago in 157 and a third innings. Last year with the Yankees and the Cardinals, 178 and a third. And he had good numbers there, a 3.48 ERA. I still don't know why the Yankees traded him for Harrison Bader. To me, that doesn't make any sense. But the point being, if you look at it, he's comfortable pitching in a big city, right? This is a really good fit if the Red Sox are willing to give up something to get him here. He will have a market, but this would be the perfect guy who has experience in a big city, can go out there and eat up innings as long as everything plays out okay with the hamstring situation. Jack Flaherty, also a Cardinal, could be moved. Last two starts, 12 and two-thirds, zero earned in wins over the Marlins and the Yankees. So he's thrown the ball really well as of late, but the problem with him throughout his career, he's been up and down. He's shown flashes, but he's never been consistent. Final year of arbitration, so he's a free agent. He's another rental. Another guy that keeps the ball on the ground, the 46.4% ground ball rate, 21st out of those 80 that have gone at least in eight, have gone at least 80 innings, 427 ERA, that's 50th. He is up and down because of the command, 11.7% walk rate, that's 77th out of those 80 starters. And lefties have hit him really well, 305 with an 824 OPS. Lefties are hitting 333 against his heater. So I would prefer Giolito and Montgomery to Flaherty. I'm not the biggest Flaherty guy, and Montgomery seems more realistic to the Red Sox than Giolito. Okay, so let's look at a couple of other guys that are down a little bit, okay? So we mentioned Giolito. How about Lance Lynn? Now, he's not having a great season, but last time out, he did go seven scoreless with 11 strikeouts. The numbers overall not great, but he's been better as of late. Now, he has a club op option next year at 18 mil. 
The buyout is one mil, so he could easily just be a rental for you if you don't want to bring him back, or if he threw the ball well for you when he came over, you could keep him at that 18 mil next year, so you know you have a guy that can eat up innings. Now, like I said, the numbers have not been good. The ERA is north of six, but last year that number was at 399, and he's had some really bad outings that have attributed to the really, really bad ERA. Eight runs against the Giants, eight against the Angels, seven against the Royals. So those are going to damage the ERA, and here... <laughs> you would remove him quicker, right? I mean, there would be more urgency when you're in a race to try to get into the postseason. You're not going to let him hang out there after giving up four runs already or five runs. Last four starts, 39.4% strikeout rate. So he's throwing the ball better than he has all season long. That's third behind only Blake Snell and Tyler Glass now. So he's been a strikeout king as of late. And I think he would relish playing for a contender. He's a super competitive guy. And like I said, the numbers overall are not pretty. I get all that. But this is a very gettable guy that could at least eat up innings for you. Like I said, I'm not asking for the world from Heimblum. I'm just asking for a competent starter that can help you in terms of your rotation, right? All right, so how about Patrick Corbin's another guy that probably is going to be available, although I don't know if Washington's going to be able to move him. Up and down season, hard pass for me, $35 million on the contract next year. Last two seasons, 631 ERA, 489 ERA has not been good the past few years. Would not want him. I don't see why the Red Sox would be interested in him. I don't think there's going to be much of a market. Another interesting team is the Cubs, who are 42 and 47, and I'm not looking at Marcus Stroman. I'm actually looking at Kyle Hendricks. Club option next year, $1.5 million buyout, so you could decide to move on from him if you didn't want him. He's in his 33rd, uh, 33-year-old season, late start due to the surgery that he had last year, so he's made nine starts. So since making his debut this year, that was on the 25th of May, a 304 ERA, that's 23rd of 78 starters during that stretch, better than Garrett Cole during that stretch, better than Nate Evaldi during that stretch since he made his season debut. The whip is at 1.03, that's 17th. The walk rate is at 4.7, that's 14th. The strikeout rate, that's one thing he doesn't do. He doesn't strike anybody out. We know this about Hendricks, 14.7%, 75th out of those 78 starters during that stretch since he made his debut. But that's who he's been for a long time. The reason that the numbers are always good, the hard hit rate, the ball's off the bat, 322 percent that's seven so a lot of soft contact he's been dominant against lefties 194 because he has the nasty changeup lefties are just 127 against his changeup righties 255 mainly because the two seamer has not been great they're hitting 306 against that now selfishly i would love this move because this is a guy that does it differently and i enjoy that about major league baseball we see so many of these high strikeout guys and believe me i enjoy strikeouts as much as the next guy but seeing a guy that has to sort of think the game through, I really do appreciate that. Hendricks would be a great fit. Professional, 33 years old, can come here and there. You know he's going to eat up innings. That'd be a guy that I would love the Red Sox to go after. Now, the one team that I would say to monitor, the most interesting team to me, at least, as we get closer to the trading deadline, is Cleveland. Okay, because they're 500 and they're in first place, but they're in that awful central division. But what about Shane Bieber? Is there a possibility that Bieber becomes available? Because... Okay, he's entering his, or I should say he's in his 28-year-old season. Arbitration next year, then a free agent at 30. And the Cleveland Guardians are 26 in payroll. They're not paying big money. And this year, they're not competing for a World Series. We've seen it. That team is not good enough. And they have young pitchers all over the place. The Allens of the world. McKenzie's been dealing with an injury, but he had a 296 ERA last year. Their top prospect, Gavin Williams, just came up. They have a BB as well. So they got a lot of really good, interesting guys in terms of their young pitchers, right? So Bieber could be on the block, okay? And 
the Guardians long term are not going to pay this guy, right? Because they have all these young pitchers that are coming up. This is what the Guardians do. But Bieber not having the great season that he had a couple of years ago when he won the Cy Young. I get it short in season, but still he did win the Cy Young. 377 ERA this year. Last year that was a 288 and 200 innings and a 104 whips. Those are great numbers. So man, if this guy comes on the market, it would be an absolute bidding war. And I think if you're the Red Sox, you're hoping for this to happen. Now, I don't think they get in the sweepstakes for Bieber. Don't get me wrong. But it opens up some of these other guys, right? So the high-end guys, the Giolitos, the Biebers, if Bieber becomes available, there's more teams going after Bieber and Giolito, and that just heatens up that market, and then maybe the Red Sox can get one of those secondary guys. As I mentioned, I think Montgomery would be a great fit, and I love Hendricks, and I'd take Lynn. I'd take any of those three guys just to eat up some innings. Obviously, my preference would be Montgomery and Hendricks over Lynn, but Lynn can eat up innings. And I get it. The numbers are not great, but we've seen him. He's a proven pitcher. So my whole point is this. You can go out there and get a starter. You need a starter. These guys are on the market. Go get one, please. Okay? Help your team out if you're high in bloom. At least go down swinging to use the baseball cliche, if you will, right? See what this team looks like with enough in the rotation. Because no matter how you slice it, the rotation is on high in bloom. The rotation being this bad is on high in bloom, right? No Nate, and we got into the whole contract situation with Nate, and I know people say, well, Nate, and I know this, Nate got offered more years than the Rangers are willing to go. The Rangers gave him the option on the third year. He was looking for four. The Red Sox offered three, ends up settling for two with an option with Texas. I understand all that, but my whole point with Nate has been they should have been active in negotiating a contract prior to the offseason with Nate. But the point being, you don't have Waka, you don't have Nate, and whether or not you want to say that's the Red Sox fault or not, the way that the rotation ended up, that is on the Red Sox, right? Sale is injured, and you were depending on him to be consistent, and you knew that he was an injury risk. Whitlock is also injured, and he's always injured, right? So those are things that you had to consider, and you signed Kluber, who we all know fucking sucks, right? So you give your team a chance if you make up for your mistake. And I really think this wins over people, right? Not only in the clubhouse, but showing that you actively care about trying to win this season, right? And like I said, I don't expect one of the huge guys. I don't expect Giolito, and I'm not even the biggest Giolito fan, but I wouldn't expect Bieber if he became available. We're just talking about the Kyle Hendricks, the Jordan Montgomerys, the Lance Lins, a real starter that can make this team make a lot more sense, right? Because it just feels like they just need a little bit of help to make a legitimate run. And I'm not saying this guarantees you a playoff spot, but at least it gives the team a chance. And this team, the way they've played as of late, they deserve a chance. Now, look, if they come back from the All-Star break and they don't look like the same team against these shitty teams, the Cubs, the A's, okay, that's a totally different situation. But I would be working on trying to help this team right now because they're good enough to make a run into the postseason with the team they currently have. If you just give them one arm, one guy that can give you five, six innings, right? We're not asking for prime Pedro Martinez or prime Josh Beckett. All right, one other Sox-related note. We're recording Tuesday early evening, so I had one takeaway from the Home Run Derby. Mookie clearly, he didn't even want to be there. I mean, Mookie just mailed that thing in, and I know he said, like, his wife wanted him to do it. By the way, that was the most bizarre interview with his wife. It was just weird. It's like almost like she wasn't planning on being interviewed, which I don't blame her. It's just, it's a weird idea because she wanted him to be in the Derby. They interview him. It was just, it it was weird. I, I thought the... The TV presentation of the Home Run Derby was pretty bad. I did not think Eduardo Perez was good, to say the least, in that thing. But anyway, so you had the remarkable performance from Julio Rodriguez, who hit the 41 home runs in the one round. He doesn't end up winning, but he does it in front of the home crowd. It sort of reminded me of Mark McGuire. I was at the Fenway Home Run Derby when he had the record-setting round, and then Griffey wins it. But Mark McGuire, that's the thing I remember from that derby. But Vlad Jr. wins it over... 
Randy or Rosarena. Now, here's the thing I want to say about the Derby. Now, Rafi, of course, was not an all-star this season. But in 2021, they asked him to do the Derby and he declined. Cora wanted him to do it. Remember, Rafi apparently at the time said he isn't a home run hitter in BP. But I think Rafi should do it. You look at the numbers since 2019, which is Rafi's breakout season. 128 home runs. That's tied for ninth in Major League Baseball during that stretch. 919 hard hit balls. That's second. 217 barrels. That's seventh. 169 doubles. That's first. First in all of Major League Baseball since the start of 19. He's third in hits with 675. 429 RBI second. And look, it doesn't really feel like Rafi cares about being a star, right? Like in terms of the fanfare and all that. Like he just wants to play baseball, just loves playing baseball. But I mean, I really feel like it's a cool experience for some of these star players. Like you could see how much Vlad enjoyed it, although he's really tired. Arosa Reina really enjoyed it. Julio Rodriguez really enjoyed it. Mookie did not enjoy it. But what we've seen is most of these other big stars in Major League Baseball have done the home run derby, right? And I would just like to see Rafael Devers in it. And this is just for me selfishly. I mean, the guy has some of the best raw power in Major League Baseball. Like, you're not getting to 10 guys before you get to Rafael Devers. I would just like to see him in the home run derby one day. I think it would be incredibly compelling to watch him. And I think he's got that big personality. He's got the big st- the smile. I think he'd have a lot of fun doing it. So I wish that Rafi next year when he makes the All-Star game again would be in a situation where he does the home run derby. And as I said earlier, I really do believe that Rafael Devers is going to have a massive second half of the season after not making it to the All-Star game. Not to say that he deserved to make it, but I do think we're going to see a big second half from Rafael Devers. All right, a lot more to get into. We will get into the latest with DeAndre Hopkins because we have an update there. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at Ugg.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. We do have time for a call and an email. So let's do the call first. The number is 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian. This is Patty from Springfield calling again. And since you dredged up Mookie Betts' memories, I uh, figured I ought to share... My memory of his last game as a Red Sox, his last play in a Red Sox uniform, uh, it was game 162 in 2019. It was a meaningless September game, and uh, the Red Sox were playing the Orioles. Both teams sucked that year. Um, we brought my dad and, like, 20 of our family to sit. He wanted to sit in the, the Ted Williams red seat, and so we were there enjoying Fenway. It was a meaningless game, but also figured it might be Mookie's last game. Bottom of the ninth, he came up with two outs, and the Orioles pitcher walked him, so he booed the Orioles pitcher, because he figured that was probably his last uh, at-bat as a Red Sox, and he walked. But uh, then Andrew Benatendi came up and hit a ball right between the first and second baseman, 
seeing eye single, uh, the Orioles right fielder lobbed it back into the infield. The guy's probably not in the major leagues anymore. And Mookie Betts just kept motoring from first base. We kind of all realized at once that he was about to try to score to walk it off on a seeing eye single. And, of course, he just beat the throw at the plate, and the crowd went wild, and we all went home happy. And that was Mookie Betts' last play as a Red Sox. So as much, just as much as the home run derby and the MVP and World Series, like the hustle and the, the defensive play was why he was worth going to see on a daily basis. And that's why I can't forgive I'm Bloom and the Sox organi- uh, ownership for letting him go, and that's why I can't forgive you for dredging <laughs> those memories up. So thanks again, Brian. Keep up the good work. Bye. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I was just reminded of it during the home run derby. And by the way, like, I did that take on what was it Sunday? Bill had the same. Bill was talking about Mookie on his pod as well because he was at a game recently. Saying on Do- if you didn't hear Bill's podcast, he was at Dodger Stadium and Mookie's playing shortstop. It's like holy crap, this guy can play shortstop too. It's unbelievable how versatile he is. But yeah, I just looked that up. So Devers had a it was a walk off single from Rafael Devers that Mookie scored on. Yeah, outstanding player. The home run derby. Though I'll say this as we bring in the producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. So Jamie, I was watching the home run derby last night and i'm like I, I mentioned it on the show the other day about like mookie's odds in the home run derby i'm like fuck it i'll put some money on mookie the dude was the worst guy in the home run yeah. derby and like you knew that he wasn't gonna have the extra time with the 440 but that was like the strangest derby strategy i've ever seen he legitimately didn't use the timeout, and he wasn't he doing the towel yeah, he wasn't tired, right? He wasn't tired at all. It's just like, I mean, the guy's, obviously, he's in phenomenal shape. I mean, he can dunk a basketball. He can do all these different types of stuff. So, like, we saw even Vlad, who won it. Like, Vlad was gassed in all these rounds. Julio Rodriguez, after he hit 41, obviously, he was going to be gassed going forward. But I just felt like Mookie was almost like, he was, like, overthinking it, right? Because he even said before the Derby that he had no chance at winning, and I've almost felt like that was setting himself up. So, mm-hmm. if, hey, if he didn't perform well, it's like, oh, I'm not a home run hitter. I'm just doing it because of my wife. But, man, I was like, I felt bad for myself because I had money on Mookie, which was probably stupid. I mean, he had he was ended up like by the time the Derby started, he had he was tied for the longest odds. So he probably wasn't going to win it. But and I probably should have went with I mean, I can say it now, like the two guys I was looking at was Vlad. I was just looking at the value of Mookie. Right. And but I will say this. You know what I did like about the Derby? was, uh, first of all, Julio Rodriguez's performance. He was cool. Unbelievable. Blasting him. And when he just like, and I don't like Pete Alonso, so I was so happy that Julio Rodriguez beat him again because remember, like, they kept, at the beginning of the day, I saw somebody put on social media, like, Pete Alonso right now, it's like him doing, like, the squats before. Like, yeah, I saw like, that. dude, come on, man. Like, he, he's <laughs> lifting before, like, the home run derby, so I was glad about that. And then... I thought the Vlad performance was cool, like the first father and son to do it. I mm-hmm. will say this though, shorten that thing up, man. It's too yeah, long. the guys are too tired. Like yeah. and it's too long. Like it's yeah. too long of an event. It's a great event. It's just too long of an event. And I will say this, I was kind of pulling for a Rosarena because I didn't have money on Vlad or him, but like a Rosarena like being the smaller guy, it was kind of cool seeing that. And that's what I thought Mookie could do, right? Because Mookie's yeah. obviously an exceptional athlete in great shape. And he's obviously has a ton of power. I mean, the guy's up to 26 home runs. So that's what I was hoping that Mookie was going to be able to do. And how about yeah. how about the fact that you had Pete Alonso's pitcher, and I'm not complaining about it because I didn't want him to win. He was terrible. 
Dude, this guy's like throwing sliders on the black. <laughs> Hitting him on the outside corner. Yeah, bro, mixing a mixing a strike. Yeah, like, dude, yeah, totally. He's getting him rough. to chase sliders on the outside portion of the plate. And I I was reading that apparently, and they mentioned it on the broadcast that like he was supposed to have his own coach come yeah. in, but he couldn't make it or something. So I hope we never see Pete Alonso in the Homer Derby contest again. I've had enough of that guy. I'm not sure you're gonna get your wish. I I feel like he's gonna be back. Oh, definitely not. This, this is what he but. fucking lives for. Yeah, totally. A couple of years ago, he says he's the best power hitter in the game. <laughs> I kind of like that he takes it really seriously because it makes other guys kind of get into it a bit more. But I hear you. He's definitely a hard with that stuff. I thought Rosarena was by far the most fun guy. I really wanted him to put on those cowboy boots. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. But um, one thing that I think would make it a lot more interesting, Brian, is they got to find more lefties and righties to, to go up there. Like they had like all righties now. And that's why I think... It gets a bit boring when you just see them all blasting to the exact same part of the field. Except Rushman, and then Rushman. He was cool. Yeah, overtime. He go or not overtime, the bonus time. Yeah, he goes the to right the other side. side of the plate. That was I amazing. Thought that, yeah, I thought that was really cool. And he had his dad there. That was cool. That was cool. Yeah. But it's just, it's too long. And Eduardo Perez, he's terrible, man. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. He says some of the most obvious I stuff. I appreciated his Spanish translation, at least. Yeah. He kept saying, like, he knows this. The crowd knows this is important. And then he said, <laughs> look at this. Everybody's in their seats. They literally pan to yeah. people sitting down. It's like, it, no, actually, no, not everybody is actually standing up. Actually, most of the ballpark is actually sitting down. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. He bothered me slightly less than Bo Bichette, who they kept trying to get him involved. He kept like trying to get over to Vlad Guerrero when he's like doubled over because he was so tired. <laughs> I kept no. bothering him, you know. I don't get the point of the Bo Bichette thing. Like, yeah. they're just telling... It's so weird, because Eduardo Perez is telling him what to ask Vladdy. It's like, <laughs> what's the point of having Bo Bichette then? Just yeah. have, like, a mic for Vladdy, and Eduardo Perez can talk to him, or, like, an earpiece, I should say. Mic'd up home run derby would be kind of cool. Yeah. Put that in the ideas box. I wonder, too, like, he thinks that now Vlad's going to have a monster second half like Soto did when he won the derby. We've seen that go the other way with a lot of guys, though. Yeah, Bobby Abreu. Up their swing. Yeah, completely fell off after that. And Eduardo Price kept pointing out that it wasn't his normal swing that he was taking for the home run derby. So maybe it does. Who knows? I, I wouldn't mind if he sucked in the second half. I wouldn't <laughs> mind at all. Suck it up, Blue Jays. That's right. We're crushing him so far this year. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the email box. It's off the pike at gmail.com. Who do we have here, Jamie? We have this from Dave in North Carolina. Dave writes, my conclusion after your analysis comparing NBA's number two players is that JB is an excellent player, but not worth the mega bucks that it will cost that will restrict the Celtics in the near future. My question, do you think the Celtics would be better off acquiring a three-point sniper, a defensive specialist stud, and an experienced, reliable backup guard and still have some money left over rather than pay JB the Supermax contract? What do you think of that? No. You can't break them into pieces, right? Like, yeah, there is one on, there's one on one trades that I would do. I understand the point, though, is like, OK, is it worth paying this guy all this money instead of getting like a bunch of different guys, right, to give yourself some depth? I understand that portion. Like, it's kind of like we we're talking about with Keith on a way smaller scale with Malcolm Brogdon. Well, can you get a guard and could you get an additional big or can you get an additional wing for Brogdon, like in a similar amount of money? So it's a similar question to that, but it's just. You got to keep the star player because here's the thing about Jalen, his contract, even if in two years you say, okay, maybe we really do have to move on from the Tatum Jalen pairing. And I'm not predicting that to be the case. But my point with that is just 
I do think that Jalen's contract is still going to have positive value on it because he's going to be young enough to the point where, like, for example, Carl Anthony Towns, his value is at its nadir right now in terms of his Mm. persona, right? I mean, the guy the other day is asked about how to, how's it going to work out with the three centers? You, Rudy Gobert, and Nas Reed, like, or or I forget the exact terminology of the question. It's like, people are questioning whether it's going to work out. And he's like, watch us. It's like, all right, dude. (laughs) And it's the same guy that said, them making the play-in was a bigger accomplishment than the Denver Nuggets exactly. winning the championship. But I still think if they like called up the Knicks, they could actually get positive value for them for the contract. I actually do believe that because of the age, right? So when I look at it from that perspective, I'd say like the Jalen contract, the Supermax, it's not going to be a situation where so many of these deals have been considered to be bad value, like John Wall dealing with all these injuries. I don't see Jalen's contract being that mm-hmm. way. So if that is the case... I would just rather keep the player that has larger value going forward because he's still going to be considered a valuable player. At that time, you would predict him to be a three, four-time All-Star. Maybe he gets another All-NBA team, although I'm not completely convinced of that. But no, I don't think you can do it for that. Now, if Lillard, if they're looking at the Lillard trade, okay. Or the one I posed before was Darius Garland. That one to me would be interesting because that is a better fit with Jason Tatum, but I don't think that the Cavaliers would do that in terms of Jalen. I just don't, and I know there was some reporting that they were interested in Darius Garland, like moving him. I, I really like Garland. I think Garland's a phenomenal player. Every time he plays the Celtics, I feel like he goes nuts in terms of, I like, it's just difficult to stay in front of that guy. It really no, is. intriguing, so, for sure. So, like, th- that type of trade where it's like a star-level player or a guy, like, close to being a star-level player, I would do it. But mixing it up for three different guys where none of them are a star for Jalen Brown, I just feel like you lose when you make a trade like that. Yeah. Every time you trade the superstar for a deal like that, you lose. And Jalen Brown, I think you lose. Especially at his age, man. It's it's too—we're too early on in the process to get rid of that player for that type of package, right? Like, now— if it's like five years down the road and the contract's not looking good anymore, okay, I can understand the idea when it comes to that. But right now, no, I'm not trading off Jalen Brown for pieces. Yeah, totally. I think obviously everyone was super disappointed with the postseason last year, but I don't think it's like a hundred. I don't think we've necessarily seen his ceiling. Like maybe we have, but maybe we haven't. I think last year was his best year basically in the regular season. So you know, let's ride it out a bit longer. Maybe that sounds passive, but I think that's also just patient. Yeah. So when he actually signs his contract, I'm going to do a whole thing if. on what I what I think he can do better going forward. I think it's eventually going to happen, like yeah. what I think he can do forward. But one thing I would suggest right away is, dude, don't take more than seven threes a game. You're not good at shooting threes. Why do you take so many threes? That's the thing that irritates me because he makes it easier to defend them. Because he's so dangerous when he gets into the lane. I mean, occasionally, as some of these teams, Miami knows, like, hey, if he if he goes to the lane, force him to his left, he's going to turn it over. Like, that's obviously an issue. But He's going to be in Missoula's doghouse if he stops taking the threes. Him and Tatum both. Oh, that's a good point. Maybe he went to maybe he went to Joe and was like, hey, Joe, um, thinking about taking more twos. And Joe's like, okay, uh-uh. Jalen, we're going to fucking trade. Jalen, we're going to fucking trade you. Okay. <laughs> You're out of the mix, no longer part of the organization. That's why Joe's going to have a really difficult time with Porzingis. He is. Hey, uh, Joe, I'm going to take a couple of shots. Uh Uh-uh, no (laughs) post-up. Unreal. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Brian, talk to you later. All right, so I did want to get into a little bit of DeAndre Hopkins, just sort of an update on him. So Jeff Darlington from ESPN was on the Rich Eisen show, and he had this to say. My understanding with the Bills is this year they'd love DeAndre. 
and he'd be a great addition, but they're not going to pay him if he wants to ring chase. There is a spot for him. Okay. So the Bills have like $5 million in salary cap space, so they can't sign him to any significant contract. So first of all, I just have to get this out there. The Bills are trying to sell DeAndre Hopkins on ring chasing. Did I miss something? The Bills lost 27 to 10 to the Bengals in the divisional round last year. They lost to the Chiefs 42 to 36 in that epic choke job in the divisional round two years ago, not in the conference championship. They played in the AFC title game in 2020. They lost 38 to 24 to the Buffalo Bills. So they have, or excuse me, to the Kansas City Chiefs. They haven't really been close to winning the Super Bowl, despite everybody talking about last year. Could they go undefeated? Could they be better than the Patriots from 2007? No, they cannot be better than the Patriots from 2007, okay? And here's the thing. They haven't won jack shit. Ring chasers go to teams that win, that win rings. Like Durant went to the Warriors or like the Patriots, right? The Patriots, when they were at their best, they were selling winning. This is why Junior Seo, Chris Long, Darrell Rivas. This is why those type of players came here, right? Someone tell me what the Bills have done to be a team that is recruiting ring chasers. Vaughn Miller went there because he wants to win with a third different team. It wasn't like he's chasing rings for just the sake of chasing rings. No, he's doing it because he wants to be unique and win with a third different team and be the guy that does that, right? It, it, and he thought the Bills gave him a chance. But it's not like you have all these guys that are like, I'm going to the Bills because I'm going to win a Super Bowl. They're not the Patriots. The Patriots had a legit promise. The Patriots promise was literally, okay, starting in what, 2011 or 2012, we're going to go to the AFC title game every fucking year. That's what they did. Until 2019, they just went to the conference championship every year. So it's basically, hey, if you lose the conference championship, the season's a failure. And at least if you get to the Super Bowl, you can say you went to the Super Bowl. But you had a pretty good chance to get to the Super Bowl every time you signed with the Patriots, right? The Bills haven't made one with this core. And it seems like they're actually getting further away. The Chiefs are still the Chiefs. The Bengals are better than the Bills right now. And teams like the Dolphins are on the rise. And I know the Tua deals with all these injuries and whatnot. The Jaguars are on, a ri on the rise. And I know you say, oh, you're crazy, Brian. Well, Trevor Lawrence is pretty fucking good. The AFC is better in general. The Ravens are going to be good again next year. So I just look at it and I say, if I'm Hopkins, why would I take less to go there? If I'm going to take less, I'm going to the Chiefs or I'm going to the Bengals. Obviously, the Bengals don't need them. Or I'm going to the Eagles. Like, I could understand this in terms of DeAndre Hopkins if this was the Eagles, the Bengals, the Chiefs, or the Bills, right? The Eagles just made it to the Super Bowl. The Bengals made it to the Super Bowl two years ago. The Chiefs are basically living in the AFC Championship game like the Patriots used to do, right? So that's why I just don't understand the Bills trying to sell them on ring chasing. Why? How could the Bills win that type of argument? Like, the Bills think they're way better than they actually are. Or I shouldn't put it this way. The Bills think they've achieved a lot more than they actually have. You haven't won anything. Okay. Now, I did also want to get to this. This is from Mike Reese's Sunday column for ESPN. He says this, quote, According to sources close to the situation, the Tennessee Titans and the Patriots have made offers. The Titans have been more aggressive to this point, and Hopkins hasn't been in a rush to sign. One reason for Hopkins to wait a bit longer is to leave open the possibility of another team entering the mix, potentially increasing his market. Okay, so if you look at the Patriots, according to over the cap, 17.7 in salary cap space, the Titans are at 8.3. Okay, this is according to over the cap. Some different websites will give you different figures. But the point being, the Patriots have a lot more salary cap space than the Titans do, no matter which website you check into. We talked to Ted Johnson last week, and he doesn't believe the Patriots ultimately are going to get this done. And that sort of is making a little bit more sense to me right now, because look, 
I don't have to tell you how important DeAndre Hopkins would be for this team and the quarterback. I've done that on multiple podcasts. He needs a legit weapon. They need a legit wide receiver. It makes everybody else fit into what they're doing. Juju will thrive as the number two like he did with Kelsey last year and going back to his days in Pittsburgh with Antonio Brown. So here's my thing. If the Patriots feel the same way that I do, and look, maybe they don't, but let's just do it this way. For the sake of this argument, for the sake of the hypothetical here, let's say that the Patriots really believe that DeAndre Hopkins would be massive for Mac and would be huge for their offense and everything fits into place. Let's say that the Patriots believe the same thing that I do, okay? If that's the case and you have more than double the cap space that the Titans do, why not just blow him over with an offer? Give him way more than Tennessee is offering in the first year and then make it impossible for him to say no. By the numbers, you can make that offer to DeAndre Hopkins. You could offer him way more than the Tennessee Titans can, right? And it isn't like number one receivers are going to fall in your lap anytime soon. This is your opportunity to get one, even though he's a bit older. And in the past, the Patriots could play hardball with guys, right? Hell, they've done it with their own guys for years. Think about Edelman, Hightower, and McCourty. Hey, guys, go out to the market and come back with the best offer and come back to us at the end. And ordinarily, those guys, in all cases, came back to the Patriots, right? It seems like they're saying, hey, DeAndre, here's our offer. See what else you can get out there. And my whole thing is just get it done. You're not the Brady Patriots anymore. You look at this situation and they may still end up landing the guy. I'm not saying they don't have a chance. They clearly do. They clearly had a good productive meeting with DeAndre Hopkins. But why just not make your life easier, right? And I get it. Maybe Bill just doesn't want to sound desperate in terms of going after DeAndre Hopkins and offering him way more money than anybody else. Maybe that's just not in his ethos. And you can give me all this stuff about, well, it's more difficult to build a team if you're spending all this money on a receiver. Is paying A.J. Brown or Tyreek Hill or Stephon Diggs, are those deals not worth it? I just don't understand. This is a position now in the NFL that you pay for. So I just don't want to get to camp and they say, hey, hey, well, the Patriots made a competitive offer, but it wasn't good enough. And the Tennessee Titans, they were more aggressive right now, apparently, according to Mike Reese. And it gave him the leg up, right? Like they were constantly checking in on him and that ended up being the difference, right? He really liked Mike Vrabel, et cetera. I just wish the Patriots to get this thing done now. And I'm just really confused. If you really want the player or do you really want the player, but at your price? And I feel like, okay, you could really want players at your price previously, like Revis coming off an injury. But the difference now is you don't have the guarantee that you're making it to the AFC championship game because Revis it was hey you're going to play competitive football in all likelihood you're playing in the AFC championship okay so even if that money isn't maybe what you could get somewhere else you're still making close to that and you have an opportunity to win a Super Bowl that's not the same thing with DeAndre Hopkins you're nowhere near some of these other contenders in the AFC so do you really want the player or do you really want him like you wanted Darrell Revis at your price and that's where I think the Patriots sort of have to alter their process in terms of going after some of these free agents. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172, or email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. All right, big guest coming up on Thursday's pod, so make sure to keep an eye out for that one. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-8HOPE-NY or text HOPE. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like... Can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. 